moved to Las Vegas in 1995. How many of you guys reluctantly moved to Las Vegas, kicking and screaming the whole way? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, he, he came in 1995 as a supervisory geologist to oversee the underground geological mapping of the Yucca Mountain Project. Okay. you have any geological questions this uh, morning, we'll be referring, uh, reference him for any of those. Uh, after moving here, he felt called by the Lord to go back to school and formally study to become a pastor. And in, in 2009, he left his position uh, with the government to become an associate pastor at ICLV, International Church of Las Vegas, and uh, where he served uh, as the men's pastor, uh, missions and community involvement as well. In uh, 2010, he became a chaplain for Las Vegas Metro Police Department assigned to the Northwest Area Command. Yeah, he got assigned to the hood, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, uh, he, he resigned his position at ICLV in 2015 to go to St. Louis to care for his parents, came back in 2017 has worked with an entity called Hope for Prisoners that has actually received national recognition for what they're doing with um, uh, ex-felons uh, returning back into the community. He's involved with Be a Voice, which is a nonprofit entity that is combating uh, um, uh, sex sexual trafficking in, in Las Vegas and is is uh, uh, working together, and he'll, he'll share a little bit more about this, bringing together churches across denominational and across racial and socioeconomic barriers to, to come together to raise up men and encourage men in the things of God. And, um, and he does a little geological consulting on the side. So if you were looking for a geologist, uh, he's available. Okay. <laughs> oh, you are, sir? Okay, right there. There you go. Oh. Anyway, he's been married 40 years to his wife, Janine. Uh, has a grown... What did I say? Did I... What did I say? I said four? No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so I was such in a hurry to get off. I'm such in a hurry to get off. Married 40, 40 years to his wife, Janine, a grown son and daughter. Just give a warm welcome to Pastor Steve Beeson. <laughs> Thanks. Can you hear me now? There we go. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't let that four years thing go by. You've been married 40 years. You've got to give God praise. Right? <laughs> right? So, well, guys, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I've known Pastor Richie. Uh, no, I don't need that thing. Put it away. The, the, you know, the Bronco score will be up on it before long or something. Man. Don't need any distractions here. Or Raiders. No, I'm... Um, but uh, I've known uh, Pastor Richie uh, now several years, and um, God's kind of woven our hearts together, I feel like, on some things. And, and uh, I was telling the other earlier group, I, I usually don't preach twice on Sunday, so I get, now I've got to kind of retool a little bit, think about that. But uh, um, I did come here in 95. Uh, I did come here for a geology job, and... Uh, I did come here kicking and screaming. That's exactly the way I would put it. Um, we started out that year 
I uh, had had a lot of experience with the government working mostly in tunnels and on dams. That's the kind of geologist I was. Um, and uh, we had been uh, recruited almost to come and work on Yucca Mountain. You guys remember the Yucca Mountain Project, the nuclear waste? And it was just looking for a place to put it, to see if the mountain out there was a good place. And because uh, I had done a bunch of tunnel mapping, they sort of uh, talked me into coming down here, working on it. In 95, we actually had started construction. And my wife and I thought, yeah, we, God's not calling us to Las Vegas. We don't want to live there. I was traveling down here. And we started off the year saying, it's okay. I'll just travel. I'll commute home on the weekends. We'll be all good. We love Colorado and Denver where we were living. And after about 20 straight weeks of that in May of 95, I called my wife on a Tuesday night. It was the first time ever in our marriage she had used the D word. Everybody knows what the D word is, right? Okay. And uh, definitely got my attention. So when I got home that weekend, first of all, she apologized. She was just upset. You know, I was gone all the time. We had two teenagers and things were getting really stressful. So we said, well, maybe, maybe God's planning for us to move to Las Vegas. So in November that year, we did move down here. And as soon as we got here, everything went wrong. Uh, the second day we were here, third day we were here, we were taking my son to his first day of school at Cimarron High School, and we got T-boned right in front of C- Cimarron. But you know what was weird? As soon as that happened, I knew we were right where God wanted us. <laughs> and oftentimes when God called us to something, uh, the enemy will try to discourage us. As a matter of fact, if you've got a prophetic word over your life where God said, you're going to be this, you can almost for sure count that the enemy will try to steal that away. He did it with Jesus, right? You know, Jesus is coming up out of the water and a dove descends on him and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay, audible voice from heaven. People hear it. You hear it. I mean, that would be a pretty big encouragement, right? And yet 40 days later when he's out in the wilderness, notice it says he was hungry after he fasted. I always thought that was weird, but Anyway, he was hungry after his fasted. That's when the enemy came to him and said, if you are the son of God, do this, directly challenging what the father had spoken to him. So if you've got prophetic words over your life and the enemy's challenging you or bad stuff's happening, you're probably right where you need to be, okay? Because the enemy's always trying to steal that word away, right? So uh, we moved to Las Vegas and God greatly blessed our family. We have flourished here. My kids have flourished here. Um, I've learned a lot about the kingdom of God. And one of the things that's really exciting for me right now is God's raising up a number of churches and a number of pastors. And sometimes pastors are the last ones to get this for some reason. But he's really doing a kingdom work in this city where it's not about denomination. It's not about race. It's not about if you have a big church or a small church. It's about the kingdom of God. And he's more and more people I'm running into. Your pastor is certainly one of those people. To have this heart for the kingdom of God, and that's great. To me, that's a great sign that God's working. And it's not just here in Las Vegas. It's happening around the earth, honestly. I was just in India earlier this year, and and, uh, same thing. People there are thinking kingdom. They're not thinking denomination so much. Um, You know, I was thinking about this whole thing about the kingdom a few years ago. Uh, actually, I was praying, I think, last year, and I, I kind of used the Lord's Prayer as, as my model. It's kind of the architecture, the framework that I use to structure my daily prayer when I'm praying to the Father. 
And I'm praying that first part, you know, uh, um, you know, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I had studied this before, and actually in the Greek, it's, it's really more of a command. It's, it's called in the imperative in the Greek. And I'm not a Greek scholar. This is just what I've learned from reading other people who were Greek scholars. And in the Greek, it's, it's actually come kingdom of God, be done will of God. It's like a command. And I knew that already. So I was praying this one morning, and uh, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit stopped me. When I say he stopped me, I'm not saying I heard an audible voice. He just spoke to my spirit. And I think it's actually, you know, he puts his thoughts or his questions in our mind. It's more efficient, actually, than audible, uh, audible voice. Although an audible voice would be cool, I'm ne- but I've never heard his audible voice. Um, but he stopped me right in the middle of it and said, Steve, do you believe that prayer that you're praying? And I, I knew this was a trick question, right? God wasn't looking for information. Um, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, I believe this. And he says, uh, how long have people been praying that prayer? And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, is this a trick question also? Uh, well, I guess, Lord, since you told them to pray it when you were here on earth about 2,000 years ago, he says, he asked me again, when unbelievers pray that prayer, do you think I hear it? Because, you know, you go to these places, people pray this. Almost everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. And uh, when I shared hope for prisoners, I always I bring this up. And almost everybody's at least heard the Lord's Prayer. Most people have prayed it. Even people that don't really, they've never really given their heart to Jesus pray it. And I, I said, um, yeah, I guess you, you hear it. He says, Steve, whenever anybody prays that prayer, my kingdom goes forward. And when my children, those who have accepted me, ask me into their life as their Lord and Savior, when they pray it, the kingdom advances forcefully. Remember, Jesus said, since the days of John the Baptist, okay, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violence take it by force. What does that mean? It means that we as God's people are powerful in the kingdom. And when you pray that prayer, when you pray, come kingdom of God, be done will of God, the kingdom forcibly advances here on earth. Okay? That's just warm up for what I'm going to talk about. Okay? Everybody's still with me. Okay? <laughs> Hopefully we're cool here. Um, Pastor Richie mentioned that I am a Metro chaplain. I've been a chaplain for about eight and a half years now. Uh, it happened in a very interesting way. I actually met with the captain in the Northwest Area Command. It was Chris Jones at the time. And I was trying to meet with him and do a, like a community thing with him and the area command. And it was one of those meetings that just went, <laughs> you know, it just, it just wasn't happening. I, it, and I'm, I'm pretty good at kind of figuring, trying to figure out what God's trying to do. And it was just like somebody slammed the door. And so we got to the end of the meeting. I said, Captain, before we leave, can, can, can we just pray for you before we go? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So we closed his door and uh, just prayed for him and the area command for just a couple minutes, nothing real fancy. And when I got done, I looked up, and there's just tears rolling down his cheeks. I'm like, whoa, God's doing something. So he sat there real quiet for about 30 seconds. And he says, Steve, would you consider coming up and being a chaplain for my officers up here? I said, well, let me pray about it. I'll talk to my leadership, and I'll get back to you. Okay, well, I talked to my leadership and and they looked at me for about two seconds and said, yeah, we definitely want to do this. 
And they didn't know, but my leadership had already been praying for us to be in the community. And talked to my wife, talked to Heavenly Father, and yeah, I was supposed to do this. And so uh, um, became a chaplain, and one of my main jobs is to go out and ride with the cops, mostly so they get to know us. We're just another level of people that they can talk to because of all the stuff they deal with. They have other things within the agency and all that, but um, because of my involvement with Metro, um, obviously October 1st had a profound effect. Also, since I've been in Vegas, one of the things we had started to do in, in Denver when we were there was pray for the city and begin to understand what that means. How do you, I, you know, I, I guess when I first got saved, nobody was talking about praying for a city and I didn't understand that I had authority to do that. But while we were living in Denver, God began to, to teach us how to pray for a city. It seems audacious at first. I'm like, one guy here and I'm praying for the city. Well, first of all, I grab another brother and we pray for the city. And then, you know, God began to expand my thinking. Well, right in the middle of that, God uprooted us and, and moved us here to Vegas and transplanted us. And I got to be with a group of people who were also praying for the city. And so over the, over the course of the next 20 years, really have come to lo- love this city and what God's doing here. One of the most unexpected things of my whole life. I love it because God keeps doing unexpected things to me. Like I never expected to be a police chaplain. I never expected to be living in Las Vegas. Um, I never expected to be preaching at Living Grace. Okay, <laughs> so... Um, all along the way, God's done these unexpected things. So that brings us to October 1st. That night, I got a call about 10.15, uh, almost right away. It says there's an active shooter at the Mandalay Bay. Now, being a police chaplain, I get a lot of, of texts and little tidbits about things that are going on in the department. And to be honest with you, I, I read that and I thought, right. Okay, I think two weeks before we had supposedly an active shooter at Harris. So I flipped on the TV, you know, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really happening. Um, I knew that we had officers down there working the event, and so I start grabbing my gear and everything and took off down the highway. I'm driving 100 miles an hour on the highway, and people are passing me, okay? And so I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping that this is other cops, right, you know, driving down there. And, uh, and all of a sudden they see lights behind me, and I'm like, oh, man, am I going to get pulled over? I'm like, you know, 40 over the speed limit. And it's a highway patrolman, and he shoots past me at like 140, you know. So anyway, I get to headquarters, and mainly uh, we dealt with uh, people that had families that had either lost loved ones or literally lost them. They just didn't know where they were. And I've got lots of good stories about what God was doing. I, I will just share one thing with you. There was an amazing grace on people that night, even ones that had lost their loved ones. They were so full of grace that night. It was just amazing to me. I mean, like, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like to lose one of your loved ones in a situation like that. And even with that, they were incredibly full of grace and patient. And it was an amazing time, Pastor Richie. It just, you know, it's, it's probably one of the worst nights and best nights of my life, looking back on it. Anyway, I want to tell you a story I'm going to share just a couple things. Um, I want to share stories of two cops that were there that night that that I know their story well. Out of There were about 50 working the event, and they're all on special duty kind of, and uh, about 20 more showed up. 
And um, I wanted to share a couple stories that I know real well, if that's okay. And then kind of share with you what the Father showed me he is going on, what he's doing in the midst of all this. Is this okay? Everybody still with me? Okay. Haven't checked out yet or anything? Okay. So um, uh, first officer, and I'll catch up my... Are we working? Oh, helps if you turn it on. There we go. Okay. So what happened? Most of you know uh, about 10 o'clock in the evening on October 1st, um, the festival was going on down in the street, down in the concert grounds. Across the street from the Mandalay Bay, there was a security guard dispatched to 32nd floor in Mandalay Bay to investigate an open door alarm. Okay, he gets up there, he finds it, he closes it, and just down from him, he hears drilling at the end of the hall uh, in this suite. And so he goes down to investigate it. He gets there, knocks on the door, and the gunman is on the inside and starts shooting at him through the door. And, you know, he had these bump stocks, so it was like an automatic weapon. And he wounds the security guard in the leg, but not severely. And there's also a maintenance guy in the hall. And, uh, of course, they, they retreat, and then the, the guy turns around, breaks out the windows, and starts shooting uh, down at the concert. So we don't know if it disrupted his plans or whatever. But anyway, um, he shoots a couple rounds with the high, uh, 308 into the fuel tanks across the way, maybe hoping they would blow up or something, but because of their construction, they don't. And then he just starts shooting into the grounds. Um, the officers on the ground, most of them thought there were fireworks. And everybody's like, I don't remember fireworks on the, in the plan, you know, and all that. And that goes on for like two or three minutes. And most of the officers hearing this thinking that, thinking that there's fireworks going off somewhere. But then um, um, as we look at the concert grounds, that's them down here on the lower right, okay, where it says stage and crowd. Um, officer number one I'm going to tell you about, um, I think he's been on about seven or eight years. He's actually arresting a drunk woman at the first aid tent. A lieutenant brought this woman up who was being belligerent and said, throw this lady in handcuffs and haul her out of here, you know. And uh, so he was dealing with her, and he starts hearing the same things, uh, maybe fireworks or something. He's like, who's shooting fireworks? You know, what's the deal with that? And all of a sudden, somebody brings up to him a woman with a gunshot wound, and then another one, and then another one. So he cuts the lady loose from the handcuffs, tells her to get lost. And all of a sudden, he realizes they have an active shooter. So he gets on the radio. His voice, you actually can hear him on the recording if you've listened to those recordings. And he's reporting an active shooter in the concert grounds. And uh, he's there with a paramedic. And all of a sudden, they start really getting a number of folks in. So he starts taking the blankets and cutting them up with his knife to make tourniquets. And he keeps doing that for several minutes till he runs out of blankets. And then, then he, he realizes nothing more he can do. So he makes a run for his car because he's got a rifle and a tactical vest in his car. And uh, he, as he's running along, he can hear the bullets coming behind him. And uh, he, he's not hit. He gets to his car finally and gets his tactical vest on, gets his rifle, grabs three or four more officers. He doesn't know where the bullets are coming from other than he thinks it's an elevated position. So he grabs three or four more officers. They form what's called a strike team, and they begin to work the concert grounds uh, space by space all the way around, looking for uh, wounded people, active shooter, anybody that, that they need to deal with. 
And uh, they spend the next hour just working the grounds, long after the shooting stopped because nobody knows how many there are and there's reports of multiple shooters. You guys have heard of all this stuff. And so um, he ends up doing that pretty much for the next hour or so. Finally, uh, he runs into another strike team who's doing the same thing and they've now cleared the concert grounds and they, they move on to helping any other people out. By then, most of the other people have been transported off to hospitals and stuff because of all the other heroic actions of people. Officer number two is working in the street up here uh, near the Excalibur, and uh, they're just doing traffic. You know, they're, they're keeping people from going across the thing. It's been a really chill night. They've had a lot of people coming up to them. Thank you for being here. We feel so safe with you officers here and all that stuff. And it's really been a good night up until this point. Same thing, he starts hearing fireworks, and he's wondering, what, what's with that, you know? And, and uh, all of a sudden in his earpiece, he begins to hear, we have an active shooter. Okay, and you've got to understand for patrol officers, and really for all of our officers, they've trained for an active shooter. They have this thing called MACTAC. And it was actually, if you remember, in um, 2007, um, 2007 in uh, Mumbai, I believe, um, in November 26th, they had a terrorist attack in Mumbai, India. And after that, the guy who is now our sheriff, Sheriff Lombardo, actually went to India and studied what had happened there in the police response. And when he got back, he completely changed how Metro does their police response. And uh, because of that today, I mean, it, lives are being saved. So all these officers are trained in this, this thing called MACTAC. So this officer hears that, and he immediately runs to his car, puts on his tactical vest, grabs his rifle, grabs the young officer that's with him, puts him in the driver's seat, says, take me to Mandalay Bay. So they go down the strip. They go to that second red dot there at the base of Mandalay Bay. Uh, This officer with his rifle gets out, looks straight up, and he can see the guy shooting out of the window. He can see the muzzle blast literally coming out the window above him. He's like, whoa, I'm not in a good spot. I'm right below the shooter. And plus he realizes he doesn't have a shot from there. So they take off running into the casino. Um, They get inside. Um, They're looking all over a security guy, looking for somebody with security. They're yelling, security, security. You know, they're looking for people. And and finally they they, uh, run into a security guard. He grabs the guy. Tell me what floor that guy's on right now. I need to know. Well, by then the security people had figured out he was on the 32nd floor because one of their guys had been shot, right? So they said, he's on 32. He's like, okay, take me to 32 right now. So they, they run down the hall, get in the elevator, start up in the elevator, the two officers with the security guy. And uh, um, officer number two has a picture of his wife and children taped to the inside of his tack vest. And he's thinking, this is it. I'm never going to see him again. But we are not letting this guy off this floor because he knows he's going to be running into automatic weapon fire. And he talks with the other officer, make sure your gun's ready. Uh, we, have to, we have to go down the hall. This is what we have to do because he knew people were dying in the street. He gets up to the, the 32nd floor, and when he comes out, for whatever reason, the guy stops shooting. We don't know if it's because he saw them with his cameras down the hall or whatever, but he stopped shooting just about that time. So this officer changes it all up. Rather than running down the hall, he stops and holds and calls. First of all, he calls it in. I'm on 32. This is where the shooter is. This particular room, I need more officers, and then he gets cut off by somebody else. 
swerves at the radio a little bit, and then uh, gets back on. Finally, the dispatcher comes back. Please confirm you're in Mandalay, Mandalay Bay. Yes, I'm in Mandalay Bay, 32nd floor, you know. And uh, so he asked for more officers. About four minutes later, two more officers came up, another guy with a rifle, and they put together a plan. Rather than running down the hall, since the guy stopped shooting, there's no hurry. So they begin to work the hall. They put the two riflemen in front. There's a little vestibule by each door. And they take cover in that, stay focused on the end of the hall in case the guy starts shooting. And the other two officers begin to pull people out of the rooms and clear the rooms because they don't know for sure if he's the only shooter. At this point, remember, nobody knows what's going on. They thought there were multiple shooters. So they're pulling people out of the rooms at 1030 at night. Lots of good stories there I don't have time for, but... uh, you know, people in the shower, people in bed, all kinds of stuff. And uh, they go in this one room. There's a one-year-old in there by herself. And the officer's like, where are the parents? <laughs> and uh, remember, they're all still stu- super stoked up because they're waiting on this guy to start shooting again. They work all the way down. They get from about here to the sound booth. And there's a food service card in the hall with a wire running to it. And they're worried it might be a booby trap. Because this guy has obviously planned all this stuff out. So they hold about 30 feet. But by then, one of the SWAT guys had gotten up. He came up the stairwell at the end of the hall. The shooter had screwed shut the stairwell door so nobody could get in. But the SWAT guy had a little crowbar with him. He was able to get the crowbar, crowbar of the, the room open, uh, got under the peephole camera in the door, reached across and pulled the napkin off the food service cart, saw that it was just another camera. So then they're good to go. So he loaded up the door with charges yells, breach, breach, breach. They blow the door, and they go inside, and the guy's killed himself. And, of course, people are ticked because they're, I mean, they're there to shoot the guy, you know. It sounds terrible to say, you know, but for a cop, I mean, you're, you're just waiting for that moment, and then pff, the guy killed himself. I have to think like a cop on this one, sorry, but it's the reality of it. So the, the four officers with officer number two, by then other officers are up on the floor, and they uh, spend the rest of the night clearing the hotel. And uh, it's, a, it's a very long night for them. But uh, um, he gets back down. And officer number two gets back down to his car. All night he's been looking down because they left it sitting there with the keys, you know, running, lights flashing and all this stuff. And he keeps looking out the other windows, making sure nobody's taken off with the car. You know, now that, now that the pressure is... He gets back to his car, takes his vest off, puts his rifle away. There's another police car about from here to you guys sitting away from him, and it's full of bullet holes. And he doesn't have one hole in his car. Yeah, pretty, pretty remarkable. So I just wanted to share that story because, you know, being a police chaplain, I can't. You've heard all kinds of stories, um, but you've you got to think like a cop a little bit. And I was, I was telling Pastor Richie, I had so many officers at the station the next day, they were in tears because they didn't get to go down there. One officer told me, I waited all night for the call. You know, and that's their mindset. It would happen on their watch in their city. And I literally, I've got, you know, 40-year-old men in tears talking to me that they didn't get to go down there. That's, that's how they're built, just so you know. Um, you guys know the, the, most of the stuff, 58 dead, over 500 wounded, but we also had amazing stories of heroism. Um, people, you know, shielding other people with their bodies, carrying people, throwing them over the fence. Um, one guy wrenched his shoulder throwing a lady over the fence uh, to get her to safety. 
Um, one guy stole a pickup truck, uh, and we loaded up people. He brought it back later on. It was okay, all right? Um, we had people trying to get into the police cars to get the shotguns out. And the cops are like, you can't do that. You know, some cop will shoot you for sure, you know, because they didn't know how many, how many uh, shooters there were, right? Okay, all these just amazing stories and, and you Uber and taxi drivers driving into this place while the shooting's still going on just so they can haul people off. It's amazing. It's really amazing stuff. Um, you've also probably heard of from 9-11. You remember that big fuss was that people weren't talking to each other, the police and the fire department. That didn't happen here. Uh, they all talked to each other, and other agencies were involved. It was amazing. And, you know, one of the most amazing things was our city came together like never before. We truly became a community, maybe for the first time since I've lived here on that night. It changed our city in a day. Um, you know, the Las Vegas Knights did all the stuff they did. They honored the first responders, uh, besides having a really great hockey year. Yay. Okay. Uh, 4-0 in preseason, by the way. Okay. Um, by the way, I was living in St. Louis. That's where I grew up uh, when the Blues came. Okay. I was living in Denver when the Avalanche came. And now I'm living here. I'm thinking about renting myself out to Seattle because they supposedly are the next ones that, that want a hockey team. So uh, uh, there was an amazing support, uh, our outpouring of support for, for Metro in the following days. Um, they went to what's called AB shifts, which is 12 on, 12 off, and they pair up. And they did that for that week following because they didn't know what else was going on. It's, it's a normal response. But I remember going into our station the next day, and the food was this deep on every surface in there. And... Uh, a couple days later, we had these three eight-foot-long tables, and they were this deep with cards and letters from school kids. And not just thank you. These were like whole letters they had written to the responders. And I remember one of, one of my officers, not my officers, but one of our officers. They're mine because I'm over their station, but I, I treat them like mine. Um, I remember him holding up one and said, look at this. He says, you've got to understand, this is what our community really thinks about us. See, because cops, they deal with people, you know, they pull people over. Nobody's happy to be pulled over, right? Even me. I, I usually flash my chaplain badge or something, but hey, it's God's favor. Right? True story. The last time I was caught speeding, I was on my way to a meeting of captains and chiefs at headquarters, and I had my chaplain badge on. And I was way over, I was 20 over the speed limit. And so, you know, the traffic cop walk, looks up, and I can see him he's just disappointed that it was me. <laughs> you know? And he just pats me on the shoulder and goes, 55 and a 35, chaplain, and walks away, you know? <laughs> so, got a better story about my wife, but I'll give that to you another time. Anyway, um, but the officer holds that up, and he says, this, he says, don't forget this. He says, I, I, you know, I know what you guys deal with. I deal with it too. But he says, this is what our community really thinks of us right here. You know, it was, it was an amazing time. I had hundreds of prayer services and vigils. And really, to be honest with you, our city changed in a month. The city that was Las Vegas before had ended. And we became a new community that night through this terrible thing. So I was driving around a couple of weeks after. And... As I told you, I have the, I've been praying for this community. I've been praying for God to pour out His Spirit here. And 
I was still sad. Um, we know that, that, you know, the 9-11 bombers, they'd looked at Hoover Dam, and we'd heard about other reports of, of uh, different terrorists wanting to uh, victimize our city. But God had always protected us, and yet this thing had blown up in our city. So I was really asking the Father about it. And not like, God, why'd you allow this? Because I, I knew that wasn't the right attitude. But I was really asking the Father, Father, what, what are you doing? I learned some time ago that when things weird like this happen or difficult things um, or even watching the news every night, the news is what I call second heaven news. Okay, what I mean by that is, remember Paul wrote, I think it's in Second Corinthians, is I knew the man, a man was caught up that was caught up into the third heaven. Okay, and third heaven being highest heaven. And that's where God lives. That's where the throne is, right? Okay, and we know that the enemy is the prince of the power of the air. So in, in Paul's thinking, this, this atmosphere that we live in, this is the first heaven. Okay, the, the, the area above us, the prince of the power of the air is like second heaven. Okay, but where God lives is third heaven. It's just a way of expressing where God is. And I learned a long time ago not to listen to second heaven news. When you watch the evening news, that's second heaven news. All right, the enemy has influence over that. The enemy's trying to discourage us. Uh, as, as we look, one of the nice things about being older is you have a little more perspective on things. Like I remember in, in 1969, there were 1,300 bombings in our country that year. 1,300 bombings. Okay, if that happened today, we would lose our minds. Okay. <laughs> but people forget, you know, they, sometimes they look back at the 50s and 60s like it's this golden age. Guys, I lived through that. It was not the golden age, right? 60s were a tough time in America. Uh, um, a lot of great things came out of the 60s, but there were difficult times. Is that true? Difficult times. And uh, um, so I've learned when things happen to go to the Father and say, Father, what are you doing? So that's what I was doing. Long explanation. I was driving, I think I was driving down the strip. I'm like, Father, this, this thing happened in our city. You know, you have protected our city for all of these years. And so he, he gave me a really good answer. <laughs> now, I got rem- to warn you. Remember, I'm a geologist. All right? So he speaks to me in ways that I can understand. But he said, Steve, what's happened in your city is like a volcano erupting. There's been an eruption of violence and an a eruption of chaos in your city. But you live normally under an umbrella of peace that I have over this city. He says, you've prayed for it. Other people have prayed for it. And I keep an umbrella of peace. But there's been an eruption, just like a volcanic eruption. And I don't know if you know anything about volcanoes, but when they erupt in a big way, there's a lot of devastation. How many of you remember Mount St. Helens? Okay, we got a few people old enough to remember that. And if you remember, it, there was this blast pattern all around there, and it blew all these trees down and blew ash and stuff, and it just devastated. And, and I thought, yeah, Lord, that's exactly how I feel about October 1st. I feel devastated. I feel like our city, like there's been this blast of chaos and violence in our city. He says, Steve, if you remember when volcanic eruptions happened, that volcanic soil becomes the most fertile of soils when the rain hits it. He says, Steve, there's been an eruption of violence and chaos in your city, 
But I'm sending my rains through my people. And when I do, Vegas will become the most fertile of soils. If you remember Mount St. Helens, if you go back now, there's stuff growing everywhere. How many of you have been to Hawaii? Okay, fertile soil, right? It's an amazing place. There's stuff growing everywhere. Of course, it has a lot of rain. That helps, okay? But, But God said... Steve, I'm going to rain on Las Vegas through my people, and I am going to make it the most fertile of soils for the gospel. I'm like, oh, oh, that's good. I can do that. So, but I still was kind of, kind of dealing with this. Yeah, but you know, yeah, but do you ever do that with God? Yeah, but okay, I was kind of doing that. Oops, went too far. And the Father began to show me some things. Some of this I knew before, but when God put Adam and Eve on earth, he gave them a mandate. And he said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So I looked this word up in the Hebrew. And again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I, I rely on other people who are. And that word subdue in the, in the Hebrew means subdue. Okay? <laughs> I love it when they translate it right, right? Okay. So it means subdue, it mean, it, but it's got kind of a military-type subdual connotation to it. When God put Adam and Eve on the earth, he put them in the Garden of Eden, and he specifies where it was, and there was these four rivers. And it's like, like you would plant a garden in your backyard, only big, okay? And he put them in it. But I think outside of that, I believe outside of this, and some other scholars believe this, there was chaos. And their job was to expand the kingdom of heaven into the chaos till all the earth was subdued and under the authority of God. We know that the enemy was already loose, right? He was out there messing the earth up. So from the beginning, our job was to be warriors from the kingdom. As a race, this is what we're built for, okay? But we don't subdue it the same way military does it. Now, Adam, as you know, uh, screwed up. Okay, that's a nice way of saying it. He sinned. Okay, he was pushed out of the Garden of Eden. But his mission never changed. So a few years later, this guy named Jesus comes along. And remember that Paul called Jesus the second Adam. Do you remember that? Why? Because he renewed our mission. You guys all have heard the scripture. Matthew 28, 18, we call it the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority has been given All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What's he doing? He's reestablishing the original mission. Subdue the earth. But the way we do it is differently, different than what we've often thought. Our way to subdue the earth is to introduce people to Jesus and love them. Or love them first and then introduce them to Jesus. However it works out for you. See, our, the weapons of our warfare, Paul said, are not physical. They're not carnal. But they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. So our mission as a race of people has always been to do the earth. In the New Testament, it looks like go and make disciples. That's what our job is now. Go and make disciples. Notice the last sentence there. Really, really important. And surely I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. 
You guys have all heard this, right? This shouldn't be, I don't think this will be a new scripture for anybody. Back to Genesis again. When God created man, remember he put him in the garden, and I, I kind of picture God going, it's not good for man to be alone. How many men say amen? amen. How many women say amen? amen. Yeah, I always get more from the women on that one, yeah. Okay, so he creates women. It wasn't good for man to be alone. We are built to be in relationship with each other and with our Father. We are created as a race to be in leadership. That's not near as high as the one at ICLB. I've got to be careful there. It's like this tall. Um, we are built to be in relationship with God. We're designed for it. That's why we have such a hole inside of us before we accept Jesus. Because we're, we don't have that basic relationship that we were created for. Okay? All of you know we live in the desert, right? Everybody knows to drink water. Okay? I've got some right here. Our bodies are, what, 70% water or something? Something? And I know without water, within a day or two, I'm going to be in a world of hurt. Okay? But that's how our spirit feels without our Heavenly Father being with us. So God created woman, but also... He created us always to be in relationship with him. How many of you remember Moses, burning bush guy? Okay, Moses sees the burning bush, turns aside. Now remember, Moses has been in the desert for 40 years. His best conversations are with the sheep. Okay, I'm sure his wife and kids a little bit too, but you know, all days out there tending the sheep, all that. And if you ever looked at this place on the map where he was, it was way in the middle of nowhere. Okay, and there's a burning bush, and he turns aside. God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. So he ta- I think personally he had him take off his shoes because you guys know how the desert is here, right? It's really nasty and gravelly. I just don't think he wanted Moses to be able to run away. Okay, <laughs> barefoot, he won't get away, okay? So, uh, and then he begins to speak to him. You're going to go to the greatest superpower on the planet. You're going to speak to the Pharaoh. You're going to tell him the stuff. I'm going to use you to uh, deliver my people out of Egypt because I've heard their suffering. And I'm sure Moses is there like, have you noticed that I'm like with a bunch of sheep here? You know, and uh, he says, God, I, I, I can't even speak. How am I supposed to do this? And what's God's answer? I will be with you. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. All he said is, I'm going to be with you. See, we're created to be with God. When God spoke to Isaac, same thing. I will be with you like I was with Abraham. He speaks to Jacob. I will be with you like I was with your grandfather, Abraham. He speaks to Joshua. I'll be with you just like I was with Moses. He speaks to Gideon. Gideon's like, yeah, we got, let's see, 300 guys. We're going up against the Midianites. We like hold, isn't this where they held up the thing? They broke the pots and everybody yells. And how's this supposed to work? And God says, it's okay, I'll be with you, right? If you look at Isaiah 43, 1 through about verse 5, it's an amazing thing where God speaks to Israel. And he says, Israel, you're going to go through all this stuff, but it's okay, I'll be with you. Remember Naomi, okay, and Ruth? Ruth was a Moabitess, right? Okay, and the other daughter-in-law bugged out, but Ruth said no. 
I'm staying with you. See, it's inherent in us to be in relationship. And as I looked at this, and I, you know, God started ministering this whole be with me thing. And when I was training to be a chaplain with the department, one of the things they trained us with, trained us uh, to do was um, in, in times of real family stress. And I've, I've had to do some funerals for Metro. Uh, I was actually preaching the, the Sunday that uh, Soldo and Beck got shot, sat down, and my phone had blown up. And, um, you know, I was over in the Northeast Area Command, and people were coming in with the blood of their comrades on their, on their uniforms and stuff. It's difficult times. I've had uh, one of our detectives uh, commit suicide and um, with a shotgun, and it was it was bad. It was just bad. And there's just nothing you can say in those times. What can you say to mom when that's happened? Can't say anything. But I can be with her. That's what they had trained me as a chaplain. So now God's teaching me the same thing about us with other people. That when these sorts of things happen, we can be with people. We don't have to have the answers. Jesus said to his disciples before he left, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble. How many of you have had trouble along the way? Yeah, I've been there too. But take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. That goes back to that whole subdue thing again. See, Jesus was already seeing ahead to the end of the times, he was speaking it as though it was. He was speaking it into them. Matthew 15, you all have heard this one before too. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Also, you know the scripture about we're the salt of the earth. So when people are grieving, like October 1st, what can we do? We can be with them. Did you ever notice, know that your greatest gift sometimes was just your presence and God's presence in you to be with people? Oftentimes we're trying to think, what can I say? What can I do for them? To be with you, not much sometimes. Sometimes you do. God does give you the right answer. But our greatest gift sometimes is just to be with people. When, you know, I'm focused on today on October 1st because obviously it's the anniversary. But this works all the time. People go through stuff all the time. You know, maybe your neighbors have had a son or a daughter die or a parent. What can you do? Be with them. You don't have to have the answers. Because, see, the way God created us, we're created for relationship. We're created to have somebody else in our life. We're never created to be a singular figure. So when you're just sitting with somebody, you're fulfilling a need they have that they were born with. Also, when you as a believer in Christ sit with them, you bring the presence of God in there. He is with them through you. Does this make sense? Okay, again, you don't have to try to overthink it or overdo it. Just be with them. One of the things as a chaplain, they said, you might sit there for 30 minutes and say nothing. Now for chaplains, that's a challenge. Okay, especially the chaplains I, I work with, and me too. Because you feel like you have to do something. No, just be with them. Um, with my officers, to be honest with you, the part they like the best is just that I'm there for them. It's not the great things that I say, but they know that we're there for them. I love this scripture. 
Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help them up. Does that like grab your heart? Isn't that a great scripture? Just be with people. Now, I want to share one more facet about October 1st. Um, Back in 19, about 98, I guess, um, I told you that I have a son. He's, he's in his 30s now. At that time, he was maybe 17. And uh, I'd been praying and asking the father, how should I pray for my son? And uh, one day, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and again spoke to my mind really clearly. He said, Steve, I want you to pray the spirit of David on him. Can I borrow you for a second? Okay. What's your name? Vincenzo. Do they call you Vinny? Yeah. Do they? Okay. I can remember Vincenzo. I met you before, haven't I? I remember your name. Anyway. So uh, anyway, uh, my son, uh, we were having an altar call at our church, um, and uh, my son came forward, and it was one of those things of, you know, seeking God's will for your life. And I thought, wow, this is cool. So I went up to my son, Jeremiah, and I said, Jeremiah, I was praying this week feel like I, I got a word for you. Can I just pray for you? And he's like, sure. So I said, um, you know, the Lord spoke to me, and he wants to put the spirit of David on you. So I just said, let's pray. So I prayed and prayed the spirit of David on him, and that was all cool. And about uh, 30 seconds later, our senior pastor came by, and I said, pa- uh, Paul, would you mind uh, praying for Jeremiah? He's really seeking God's will. So he stands in front of Jeremiah for about 20 seconds, and he goes, Jeremiah, you have the spirit of David on you. And I thought, cool, you know. I, I actually heard from God. Thanks, thanks. Okay. And, uh, yeah, man. So uh, about six months later, a guy came through named Lloyd Bustard. Now, Lloyd is really prophetic, but he's also a little crazy. Okay. And he wouldn't mind me saying about this. An example is he was running across our stage one day. I mean, like, really running. And he stopped in the middle of it and goes, Now, I need to explain something. This crazy thing, that's me. That's not God. Don't blame him for it. And then he takes off again. Okay? <laughs> so anyway, Lloyd, <laughs> Lloyd was a really interesting guy. Great guy. And uh, he called me up by my last name. He says, Somebody here with a weird last name. Besson, Bison, Beeson. Is there a Beeson here? So I raised my hand, came up, brought my wife up, prophesied over her. He says, You got any kids? I said, Yeah, I got a son and a daughter. He says, your son has the spirit of David on him. I'm like, cool. So I turned around to look and see, and my son was nowhere to be found. I thought, oh, man, he's out goofing off somewhere, you know. Well, what I didn't know was he was down on the floor under the power of God in the second row. I'm like, whoa, this is like a serious thing. Okay. So I'm driving around a couple weeks after October 1st, And I'm thinking about my son because my son was officer number two. And I'm thinking, Father, of all the people, of all those 2,800 officers in this city, why was my son, how is it that my son was the first one up there? He says, Steve, you prayed the spirit of David on him. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, because David was the first one to run to the battle. And I remember what my son told me. Remember when David, he was offended at Goliath. 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should speak against the people of God? And I remember my son the next day, and we've got a little bit of time, right? Yeah, I've got another story that I'll fill in here. The next day he was telling me about it, and he said, you know, riding up in the elevator, I figured this was it. You know, this, I was going to die. He said, but I was not going to let that man off the floor. It's that same warrior spirit that David had. He was offended because his Jeremiah's people, my son's Jeremiah's people, were dying in the street down below. And he had the means to stop it, possibly. See, it's that same thing. And I was like, oh, my, I totally had forgotten that I'd prayed that over him, at least in that sense. It never occurred to me. And the father said, because you prayed, people on the, on the street were saved today. Because remember, the guy still had 4,000 rounds left in his room. He only shot 20% of his ammo. Now, I don't know why he stopped or exactly when he stopped. There's different theories and ideas. I don't know if he saw them in the hall and turned around to focus on them but never was able to get a shot because of their tactics. I don't know if he decided to kill himself then. Don't know. Doesn't matter. All I know is when my son hit the 32nd floor, the guy stopped shooting. Little did I know in in 1998 when I prayed a simple prayer of obedience to what the Father wanted to say, that he would use that to save lives. And I'm not doing this in any way boastfully. I just want you to see how God knit the lives of all these people together to do an amazing thing in our city. You know, I I don't want to discount the 58 that passed away. I remember it started to hit me the day after. Um, I spent all night at at headquarters, and uh, uh, I got home about noon the next day. My son had gotten loose. Uh, They finished clearing the the hotel, I think I told you this, and he went back down to his car, and uh, did I tell you this? It was still running with the lights going and all that, and uh, the car just out from was full of bullet holes. Well, he he took his car, he went back to Northeast Area Command, and um, uh, got home, uh, I guess maybe 10, 10.30 in the morning, and I got home about noon, and I get a phone call. I just sat down with a sandwich, and I'm kind of watching the news, you know, and, and pretty out of it. And I got a call from my son. Hey, Dad, have you had lunch yet? <laughs> uh, uh, no. Okay, you want to have lunch? I'm like, yeah, okay. So we went to BJ's up in the Northwest. And we're sitting there, and he began to tell me this whole story. It's like, oh, my gosh. And a lot more detail than what I've told you all. And I kind of told him little stuff that I did. And I got to take a, reunite a couple families with their loved ones that had been shot. It was And there was a group of five guys sitting next to us at BJ's. And all of a sudden, one of them turned around and said, hey, were you guys there last night? I said, well, he was. And he just grabbed my son's hand and he goes, thank you so much. He says, I lost my fiance last night. But he says, we have been treated unbelievably by Las Vegas. I never knew Las Vegas was this way. And he just starts crying, not over his fiance, but over how Las Vegas had treated him and his friends. And I'm like, oh my gosh, God, you are definitely doing something. And even after we paid our bills, we ended up meeting them again in, in the parking lot. And three or four of them, thank you so much for your city. Your city has been amazing. I'm like, God, we're on the, we're on the, the, the day after the worst disaster our city's ever suffered. And these people think it's the greatest city on earth. How does that happen? See, God is working in our city, folks. Just being with people. 
and praying those prayers of obedience, God will bring about a change in our city. You know how they, they came up with that motto a few years ago, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Well, you know, whenever, whenever the enemy comes up with something stupid like that, <laughs> you almost automatically know what God's will is, and that's what happens in Vegas changes the world. Okay? What's happening in Vegas now will change the world. You watch. There's some things going on in our city that are world-changing right now. But I believe that there's a revival coming to our city. And I believe that people will say, if God can move in Las Vegas in that way, how can he move in our city? Would you all stand up? Um, Pastor, join me. We'd like to invite any of you that want prayer for praying with your kids. Um, if any of you are dealing with the aftermath still of October 1st, um, or even just how to be with people, we would be happy to pray with you. And you guys have a prayer team here, right? And I invite the prayer team to come up. But we'd like to just pray a prayer over you and kind of seal this word, if that's all right. That'd be okay? Can you guys just kind of turn your hands up like this, like you're going to catch it? Okay, hopefully. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these great folks. I thank you for the great privilege of uh, sharing what you've shown me. And I hope that's encouraging them, Lord. I hope that they now will begin to see October 1st in a little different light. But God, we realize that when your people are praying, nothing happens by accident and the enemy never gets the victory. And Father, I pray over them that you'll make them the greatest First of all, it being with you and you being with them. Father, I pray your presence on them in their home. God, I pray that they'll go home and they all of a sudden they'll just feel your presence. Lord, we know that you're always with us, but we love to feel your presence. And Father, I pray that your presence will be transmitted through them into their neighbors, into their loved ones, into husbands and wives as they're with each other, into parents with their children as they're with them, and into their grandchildren and into their great-grandchildren, with their neighbors and their co-workers. Father, I pray that this ministry of presence, God will now, we just, we pray it on them, Lord, as an anointing. Just receive it, a presence of anointing. In Jesus' name, amen.